Hello and welcome to the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast for episode 6 of season 2, which actually makes this our 40th episode ever. Also, this is really, really random, I know, but when I was looking at the full list of episodes we've done on my Spotify podcast account manager thing, John, there was exactly one second between the last two episodes. Juan's episode clocked in at 1 hour, 34 minutes, 28 seconds. And Hannah's was 1 hour, 34 minutes, 29 seconds. It's not that cool, but it's kind of weird. We're getting efficient. True, that's what it is. Anyway, as you'll have deciphered from the title of this episode, we do not have a guest. This, I can assure you, was done on purpose, because this gives us an opportunity to go into a little bit more detail about what we mentioned at the end of last week's episode. In case you missed it, we had said that on Monday, the 25th of September, Scottish Rugby are holding a meeting for the strategy of rugby in Scotland for the next four years. To begin, John, can you just tell us exactly what that means? What is the meeting about and who is the meeting open to? Yeah, so essentially the meeting is about setting out the roadmap, I suppose, is the way that they'll they'll want to word it. The, develop, the rugby development strategy. So what the rugby development department, what Scottish rugby are going to try and align with clubs and make sure that development for rugby continues to grow, continues to provide opportunities, continues to shape people's lives, how we maybe need to look at new things for the for the modern day. But essentially this is what is going to Scottish rugby's plan for the next four years. So with that in mind, why do we want to talk about it this week? Why have we set aside a little bit of time, a little bit of extra research, if you will? Why do we think it's important for the listeners of Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast to know about this? I would say it's 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 massively important. But at a point within rugby and within sport in general, I think we are Society pressures and society is, is starting to change and rugby clubs can no longer continue to run on the pretense of this is the way it's always been. We've always done it this way. And we've got to try and look at this as an opportunity now for us as as club stakeholders, because that's we you know, Scottish rugby are answerable to, to the clubs at the end of the day. This meeting is an opportunity for us to to be able to put our our points across and our views into that forum. Now, there'll be some people that will be as long in the tooth as as I am in the role, and there'll be some people that will be new to it, like yourself, Ross. And it's about trying to just have that conversation in and around what I perceive in my 15 years of, of being involved in rugby development, where we've maybe made some changes that maybe haven't worked so well, and where we've made changes that are working well, and, and we should be continuing to try and at times it'll be like pushing a barrel up a hill but at, at the end of the day it's it's going to be entirely worth it and just see what like I am by no means a, the, the world expert I do not have the golden answers I don't have the golden bullets I don't know how it'll be different for each each individual but that again that's the really interesting part for me is can we pick it apart and make sure that the uniqueness of Dumfries and Galloway is taken into consideration when Scottish rugby are trying to produce a national strategy that will cover matched officials, 
we'll cover women and girls rugby, we'll cover state schools, we'll cover private schools, we'll cover academies, you know, cover all that sort of stuff and how, how it all links in together is, is essentially what they're going to be discussing on Monday night. So how do these kind of meetings work for the people that are going there or they know people that are going there or have even just thought about going? How does it run? What can they expect to happen? Who's going to be there? How does it all click together? So what what traditionally would happen is is you'll have your your representatives of your regional your regional teams. So Dumfries and Galloway has a regional manager, Jess Broach, who most people in club rugby will probably know or at least heard of her. She goes round and visits all the clubs and helps them with their development plans, helps them with their the you know their own individual club strategies, and tries to influence clubs to make sure that their things are aligned to to what has been shown to be successful in the wider rugby landscape. Sitting above her is a, a guy, Alan Faulkner. Al's been involved in rugby probably as long as me. He started off as a DO at Highland, Highland, High, at Inverness, at Highland. He then moved into the Central Belt at Hamilton. He became regional manager. I think it was in the in Cali for a little bit because obviously that was where he was originally from. But then soon got transferred down into Ayrshire, and is now a regional director. So they again they will influence what's fed back to Scottish rugby. Now Scottish rugby may send down some other representatives. Who they are will will be who's basically who's who's sort of in charge of collecting some of this information. So then maybe the likes of Vicky Cox, who's competitions, some guys from Coach Head like Chris Reed could potentially be in the room. You may find that John Fletcher comes down his his performance. You may even find Gav Scott comes down as overall director of rugby development for the whole of Scotland. So there'll be a mix. What will happen they will probably have it set up in an auditorium. There'll be chairs laid out for everybody to sort of get in involved. They'll have little breakout groups where they'll probably task you with having a having a think about how certain areas of the game may look for you as an individual within your areas and within your clubs and how this sort of stuff might affect you and then try and collect some feedback. So, as you say, as someone that's been at these meetings, in these kind of environments for a long time, as of right now, a couple of games into 2023-24, what are some of the things that you would be focusing on and maybe as a wider spectrum, clubs in Dumfries and Galloway might be considering to chat about at these kind of meetings? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to write the agenda for them, but there, there may be consideration where we have a look back and look at the development strategy that was in place. Some people might have heard of as, as Agenda 3, their sort of strap line for, for last year's one that was built in and around participation, performance and finance. That was the three sort of pillars that they, that they built it on. And I think they'll want to keep the strap line of everyone's game because I think that's that's what's going to drive this strategy. That's what's going to try and drive us forward. That's the way sports development is sort of moving towards that, is that it's no longer good enough to say, I've just got an open door. You have to be actively open. You have to be actively encouraging people from all walks of life to come and get involved. 
and rugby and get involved in the club. So they'll probably have a quick look through in terms of some of their objectives that they had last year and then sort of some measures and some criteria that go go against that. Unless I don't think that's going to be, I don't think it's going to be like a shock to anyone that they'll probably have done reasonably well. COVID has obviously had a bit of an impact, but for me, there is some some things that we as Dumfries and Galloway should probably be trying to concentrate on, and that is in and around the player recruitment and retention. That'll be big. They will continue. They'll want to try and continue with that. How the competition structure looks, I think, is vital for us as Dumfries and Galloway. I don't think that the culture that we have now creates a game for all. That would be my challenge to Scottish rugby. And then obviously there'll be some other bits and pieces in around club sustainability, which is still going to be massive, and how they support coaches and coach education and match officials recruitment and development of of those kind of volunteers that make sure that the game runs. So I think that's where the conversation, that's the sort of areas that they'll probably want to focus in on with the the stakeholders as, as being the rugby clubs. I think then if we start a little bit with the player recruitment and retention, because just you saying that, it sparked a memory, I suppose, is is when you told me, John, you kind of laid out what it's like in Dumfries and Galloway to try and recruit people for rugby. So, you know, a lot of the coaches will understand this, a lot of the DOs will understand this, but you, you might know it, you might guess it, but until it's broken down like you broke it down for me, in the schools, you've got a certain number of students, which is never very much in each of these Dumfries and Galloway schools. Never, never very many. Sorry, that's very poor English. Never very many students in each of these Dumfries and Galloway schools. Then you take out or put aside all the ones that are eligible to play rugby. Then you take out age-wise, if they're within the bracket that you're recruiting for or not. Then you take out the fact that they're not playing rugby. They might be playing anything else, football, hockey, netball, whatever it is. And you're actually left with a very, very small number of players that for most of them have never played rugby before in their lives. But that is the catchment number that you're allowed to recruit and then attempt to retain. Yeah. To put some of the put some of the stats stats behind that, because that, that, that was obviously the conversation we had and and you not having the stats to hand, but I've I've got them seared into my memory. Because this is again just to caveat this, this is a conversation that we've had internally for a number of years. So this isn't anything that's new to Scottish rugby. This is this is not me talking behind their back. This is I've had these conversations with them, um, and they fully know that this is my views, and probably the views of most of them as well. If I'm totally honest, everybody wants what's best for clubs, and everybody wants to make sure that kids are playing rugby. But I think it's difficult sometimes to forget or it's not difficult to forget, it is easy to forget that rugby isn't the be-all and end-all for some of these other people, like the the vast majority of the population. Rugby doesn't feature on their radar. We are in the middle of a Rugby World Cup, and I think you would be lucky if even 50% of the population knows that the Rugby World Cup is currently happening. And I would say, like, that would be very, very genuine, generous. They've maybe stumbled across it. They maybe know about it because one of their TV programmes has been shifted off of ITV and is now on ITV2 
or the programme from ITV2 has been punted for, for the rugby. So to go back to your point, so looking at looking at the stats and being being involved in active schools now, the main purpose of active schools is to try and get kids more kids active because nationally you're talking about one in three kids being physically active. And that's all sports across the board. That's everything and anything. Dumfries and Galloway does sit slightly higher than that, but it's still not a big stat, like it's not a significant number. So if you then, as we say, if we then break that down, so you then spoke about, you know, going into schools and and being able to get access to those kids. So that's the first barrier that rugby development comes up against, is there is absolutely no legislation in place to say that rugby must be taught in the curricula. There is no inspection. Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Education come in. They do not demand to see rugby on the curricula or even offered in schools. So the fact that we even have rugby either in curricular or extracurricular is massive because there's no requirement for it. A head teacher could just say, no, we're not interested. Once you get into that, so the development officers all try and do great jobs in making sure that we have relationships with those schools so that we can go in and we can deliver in those in those sections, in those schools as we said you're then looking at one in three kids being active and of that one in three kids outdoor sports and team sports actually rank amongst the lowest in uptake swimming is the biggest nationally but what they call grass field sports is actually only maybe 20 percent and then within that you've obviously got football and you've got rugby and you've got cricket and you've got all these other sports that happen outdoors, outside on grass. So rugby probably only holds, not probably, rugby does. Previously, pre-COVID, rugby held 3% of that population to play. So if we took an average school in Dumfries and Galloway, and some people will know their school role, some people won't, but say, for example, the school role sits in around 500. As you say, you, you then have to split that 50-50 because you're going to have boys and girls split. So, as you said, make sure they're eligible to play in those areas. So if you take the boys, which runs the average of of kind of one in three, if you take that, you've got a school of 500, you then drop that down 50%, boys, 50% girls, you're looking at 250 kids. Of the 250 kids, we're saying one in three is active. So quick math, Ross, that means there is... 90 or something? Most 90 is 83 so you end up with 83 kids. And then of those 83, you then have to try and field, technically, an under-13s team, an under-14s team, an under-15s team, an under-16s team, and an under-18s team. Now, those age groups will be varied depending on the school. And obviously, the higher up the school you go, the less those numbers become. It's not like an even split. So you're probably looking at more numbers under 14s and under 13s than you do under 18s. So when you start breaking that down, that's kids that are active, only active. That's not them playing rugby. So if you then take the 83 and you see that there's only 3% of them are playing rugby, then all of a sudden, you know, you're down into single figures. So that's that's nationally, that's average. So if you have a development officer or you have a school that is producing numerous teams, then 
you're already ahead of what's happening nationally on average. With all that sort of playing on in the in the background, you then also now have the the challenge of being able to not only recruit those players, so you have to get they're just playing at school potentially. You then have to recruit them to the rugby club. So there's a barrier there that then, depending on where you are in Dumfries and Galloway, depends on how kids can access sport. We're an area of rural deprivation, which means we have a lack of access to facilities. So we don't have 3G pitches everywhere. We don't have, you know, indoor hall spaces, big sports facilities like Ravenscraig and all that that we have up in, up in the central belt. To then access some of those places, if you think of some of your rural localities, so to get to Dumfries are recruiting as far up as Thornhill. So to get to Thornhill to Dumfries is a massive shire are recruiting from a massive area to try and pull it. We are pulling in kids 20, 30 minutes away from, from the rugby club to come and play. If their parents don't have transport or their parents are working or they're a single car family or something like that, then the transport issue is, is another massive barrier that you have to try and that you have to try and break down. So we're obviously we're doing a good job in Dumfries and Galloway in terms of recruiting these players because majority of clubs have teams at least in multiple age groups, you know, 14s, 16s, 18s. Dumfries will have 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s and 18s. But again, then that then has an impact because Dumfries are able to do that because they're pulling from five schools. Some of those schools will have maybe 800 kids in them. But as you look at the likes of Douglas Stewart, that their school role is maybe only sitting about 400 and an academy will probably be sitting in around 400 as well. So then you've got to take that into consideration and sort of think about what is an actual achievable goal. Now, I've heard numbers being floated around one in four kids playing rugby. That's fairly ambitious. Decent target to aim for, but realise that that can't be almost more than that. That's verging on breaking the national average of kids that are purely active, never mind playing one individual sport. You've then got to add in the fact that rugby is such a complex sport, how do teachers teach it? How comfortable do teachers think about being able to teach that? So you've then got to try and think about how you challenge those teachers to do CPD. And again, when there's no legal requirement for them to teach rugby in the curricula, it's a very difficult sell to be unless you've got someone who's super keen on rugby. So it's then about identifying a teacher who's in that school who has a keen interest in playing rugby. So there's all these other factors that you can have the best strategy in the world, but how that impacts locally then impacts on, on the club. So although the club will go to these the strategy and, and, and everything will be a honky-dory, they need to try and think about how that's potentially going to look for them as, a, as an individual club. So for someone with the challenges that we have in Dumfries and Galloway, so all of our clubs, basically, anyone that we feature on this podcast, you know, my question would be, what good is going to this meeting going to do? How can, there's no way Scottish rugby can just change that because they can't just put more kids into into schools, obviously. You know, that it is what it is. It's that, it's that really cliche thing at the moment. It is what it is. And, and there's no way of being able to change that. So, you know, if I were in that situation, I would be thinking, well, what good is it going to do me to go to this meeting and talk about these things when there's when it seems like there's nothing that I, and especially Scottish rugby, can't just click their fingers and do? As I say, there, there, is, there, is, no, there is no easy answer to this. 
but this is the this is the challenge that now faces clubs and part of the part of the strategy that they had in the previous years was was looking at alternative game formats that are going to encourage people to participate and come back and play come back and play team sports. So it's about how how does your environment as a club encourage players to to come along and and be be part of it. Now the bit that I think is important to go to this meeting and, and really bang the drum for is that our opportunities to participate in competition is what is one of the key factors that I think a little bit of a short straw. So the way the league structures are set up for youth rugby is not based on performance. It's based on participation numbers. And they'll they'll challenge me on that, but that's essentially the criteria for entering the leagues is to have teams at every age group that have been able to play fixtures regularly. There's no sort of you have to be at a certain level or have so many players in the academy to be in, in that in that what they call the national leagues. Old school money. So when it was originally set out about ten years ago, they termed it tier, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, tier four. Now those terminologies are used internally within Scottish rugby, and most of the clubs in the Precinct Gallery sit in what they call tier four, which is teams that don't have teams at every age group that are potentially struggling for some numbers, and they they put them club them in together. Tier three as the likes of the the leagues that Dumfries are in, Ayr and Mar and all these sort of guys, where they have teams at each age group, so 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s and 18s. This is the boys' structure that I'm talking about just now. The girls' one I can come on to, kind of set up similar, but not quite, but along the same sort of vein. So then if you've got teams at those age groups, you can compete in what they call Tier 3. Tier 2 is then teams at every age group, and the possibility of a second team in some of the age groups. So you might have two under-14s, you might have two under-16s, you might have two under-18s. So you would be in that Tier 2. And then Tier 1 was for teams, I say teams, really it was private schools that had first and seconds at every age group because they're able to have those those guys on site. Girls 1 is slightly different but along the same, similar vein. So it's then based on your playing numbers. Do you have enough players to be able to play in each of the age groups? There's then four, I think, four different leagues. It's been new this year. Uh, Stuart Milne, who's one of our guys in the Glasgow South team, has been leading up on that. So there's like different levels. So you can have like a turn-up-and-play festival. There's then club festivals where two or three teams will arrive, and then there's a club v club format that happens above that but again it's not really based on performance now it's going to be difficult in year one for them to be able to base it in and around performance but certainly the boys has been ongoing for a number of years and there's some real issues there like like some of the clubs in the Friesen Galloway are performing at a really high level in which case they are sort of hindered in their development because they can't take that next step up based on the rural population and their player numbers, that they don't have an opportunity to be able to play. I remember the times where Stuartry used to play here. In fact, it was the, it was at the very time when these structures first came out, and Ayr had been used to playing us, and said that they wanted to continue that and play us in friendly fixtures. 
And a quote from one of their coaches was that they get a harder game playing against Stuart Trinity than they did playing in their league conference. Now, if those guys aren't getting regular competitive rugby, then we're, we as a, as a union are doing those players a disservice. And if we are going to recruit and retain players, every kid's aspiration is to play at a level that they want to aspire to be able to play at. And if we as clubs aren't able to facilitate that for their players, then we're just simply not going to be able to retain them. So to go back all the way back to the original point for the recruitment and retention, the league structure, which was also one of the other points that I said we should be focusing on, then becomes a massive factor in it. Because if we cannot provide our players an opportunity to play at a higher level that is suitable for their team, and they're winning games by 50 points to nil, no one is learning from that. No one's really improving from that. And our players are not being exposed to the level of competition that they need to be in order to be better to then facilitate their uh, retention in the game when they move into adult rugby because they'll feel underprepared. But obviously, I'm long in the tooth, Roscoe. You are probably more close to this school rugby. You're you're probably coming out of a different slant from coming from Merkiston. Were you always in Merky? Did you start as an S1 and work your way through? I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about it being the be-all and end-all. I joined Merkiston when I was 10, so... I I joined actually in P7, P6, P7. We call them different things there. So it's a, it's a little bit more confusing. But no, it's interesting because for us, a lot of the time rugby was the be all and end all. And it changed, especially from before my time to my time. And then what it is now, it's, it's very different. It very much used to be the be all and end all. Rugby was number one part of the school. Of course, the academics alongside that. But... Yeah, everything was centred around you playing rugby. You had to play rugby until you were... Now, when I was there, it was until you were 16. So when you were when you were 16, when you went into S4, you could then choose whether you continue with rugby or you don't. So it very much was a rugby culture kind of school. You know, I remember when we were younger, basically when I first joined, you had to go and watch the first 15 play their rugby games. You were not allowed to step foot on the first 15 rugby pitch unless you had made an appearance for the first 15 at Merkston. It was a huge, huge rugby culture. And as I say, it's evolved, become less of the be-all and end-all, but it is a school very much proud of its, its rugby traditions, how many Scotland internationals it's produced, the coaches that have been there. A lot of what happens is centred around rugby and people from and students come from all over Scotland and abroad actually to play rugby. So as we were talking about that sort of state school one in three kids physically active like if if you were to kind of have a guess because obviously you, you won't have the stats to hand and possibly your friendship group was probably all quite sporty but how did they get round the kind of idea that some kids maybe just aren't interested in sport, but you're saying they had to do rugby. So how did that how did that pan out? How did that look? Well, I mean, you had to do sport in some capacity throughout school. So obviously built into your curriculum and your I say after school clubs, but obviously we were all boarders, so you never really leave school. But there was you know, everyone did some kind of sport. And while I was there, rugby had to be one of them. Of course that was 
maybe difficult by the time you got to age 15, because if you really didn't want to be somewhere, you're not going to put any kind of effort in. In the younger years, you were made to play rugby and there were, of course, students and there always will be students that absolutely hate it, whether that's all sports or just rugby specifically. But when you're younger, you kind of are able to throw yourself into it more, try and enjoy yourself. When it gets to somewhere like 15, 16, and you really, and you've done it for a couple of years and you really don't like it anymore, then that's when we were given the opportunity to either continue with it or not. But absolutely everybody in the school, top to bottom, every age group was sport active. And most of them would continue, would choose to continue to play rugby. So coming coming from that environment, Ross, and then sort of walking into our state schools down here, like do you do you see a difference? Do you notice a difference in the attitudes towards sport? I would say I probably do. Yeah, I think that attitude the attitude towards sports in general is maybe not overly different. Sport is still trying to be a big part of of schools, which is all over the country, which is of course important. The attitudes to rugby, as you say, are different because it's not it's not compulsory to play rugby, like you mentioned. As I say, for us, it was we didn't know anything else. I didn't I didn't know anything else from age ten to age twenty four. I am right now. I've not not known anything else other than playing rugby every single day with my friends and absolutely loving it and and wanting to do it. Rugby here, after doing a little bit of coaching, a little bit of development, you can see that it's so alien to a lot of students in the schools and that's not a problem that's not their fault but they're two very very different different and actually quite hard to compare scenarios because it is so strange to to these kids that you know they can get to 16 17 18 and have never even looked at a rugby ball in their life let alone given it a go or had someone try and coach them or even just been given the opportunity to find out whether that is the sport for them, whether that is the passion for them. It's not just playing it. It's, you know, people fall in love with the game. There's so many things that can come from loving a sport, myself included. I'm a sports journalist. I was never going to make it as a professional rugby player, but being given those opportunities to to love the sports that I do has taken me into that field. But those kind of opportunities, those kind of environments, that rugby atmosphere just isn't present. And that will be part of the conversation that they'll have tomorrow night, not tomorrow night, on Monday, is that providing those opportunities for people who potentially aren't going to make rugby players, so say they they potentially get a life-altering injury, say they just decide that playing rugby is not for them, it's then how do we still retain them in the game to make them either coaches, to make them referees, to make them ARs, to make them committee members, to you know, get them involved in the club somehow, that that is then going to form part of the conversation that they're going to look about to put in this strategy is then how does that look? And again, it's very unique for Dumfries and Galloway because it's you know you don't have the mass migration that you have in in the central belt. You know, Jan, for example, that doesn't happen very often. You don't get someone coming from out with with all that rugby experience and landing on your doorstep. You know, you have to develop those guys from within. And then how does that infrastructure look and how does that work? 
when potentially most of the coaching courses happen in the central belt and you don't have a lot of opportunity for coach education locally in Dumfries and Galloway. So again, that's another reason for us to be going up to this meeting and sort of saying, you know, we want to develop, we want to identify these people, but the the problem with getting access to them is is difficult for us because it is, you know, the, the meeting's in Kilmarnock. So it's easier for Moffat, for example, to get to the Glasgow North meeting than it is to get to the Glasgow South meeting. Because logistically, as we said last episode, the size of Dumfries and Galloway is massive. And here's another interesting point that I don't think very many people pick up on either, Roscoe, is just as you were saying that about kids not having that experience in primary school. So we've been, we as development officers, we go into those primary schools and we deliver rugby, but we're only allowed to deliver tag rugby. The default position for Dumfries and Galloway Council and within active schools is that you, you're not allowed to deliver contact rugby in a primary school setting. So it's even harder when you're trying to think about barriers for kids to come and participate in the sport as if they don't get experience of that contact element in school to learn, to develop, then that carrying on, that jump to the club rugby from school, from playing curricular rugby at school to then club rugby, where you've got boys and girls that have been playing for potentially three, four years by the time you're in P7. That's another barrier because how do you then upskill someone in that short space of time to be able to you upskill them by having good coaches and by having you know a number of coaches in each of the age groups and then how do we how do we produce those how do we get them do we have a what is the strategy in order to recruit and retain those volunteers and currently the recruitment and retention of volunteers is is massive for for rugby because we don't have enough referees. There's emails coming out now to say. You know, that this weekend we have literally no referees and have club referees on standby because you may not be able to, to get a fixture. There's some referees that are refereeing three games in one weekend. They'll do a game in the morning, they'll do a game in the afternoon, and then they'll do a game on the Sunday. It's a massive commitment for some of those guys. But how do we how do we get more of those guys that are willing to do that? Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I, I want to say is, having been in the schools, it's important to note that there are some world-class players across the schools in Dumfries and Galloway at all age groups. The issue becomes, for me, that I've found at least when I've done some coaching, is that there's these really, really good players. There's a lot, there's genuinely players in some of these primary, both primary and secondary schools that I've seen that can go a long, long way. And then the rest of the group, that year group, have never touched a rugby ball in their life. There is no in-between between world-class and absolute beginners because the world-class ones have been playing at their club rugby and they've been doing it for three or four years, as you said, and everyone else is starting on that first level when we go into the schools to deliver it. There is that huge gap, which, again, isn't a problem, but there is absolutely no in-between. of. I've never had someone tell me that they've played a little bit of rugby or they've started to give it a try. They've either been playing it or they've never played it before. So on that, before we get into the regular stuff that we do every week of the results roundup and fixtures preview, Monday night, John, is the is the meeting. Any final words that you would give before going? I would just encourage everyone to get along and go and 
go and have an input because it may seem futile. It may seem like there's barriers there that are way beyond way beyond your means. But by going there and and voicing what's happening on the ground, because sometimes I think Scottish rugby miss that they sit behind spreadsheets and they sit behind stats and actually that human connection is the part is the part that's missing and being able to know what is actually happening on the ground and what sort of stuff that you've been doing and been trying because as I say everybody does want better everyone does want the game to continue but we have to we have to be a little biased and say that numbers across the globe unless you're looking at it was really interesting. World rugby stats came out, and it shows that there's a there's a global increase in players. But the the nations that have those increasing numbers are all developing nations. The tier one nations, the Scotland's, that you know, the Six Nations and the Hemisphere Giants. But in terms of overall numbers, you know, there's there's more games finishing with high scores and having to be called off, and that's that's in the that's in those conferences where they have teams at every age group. Because they're not based on performance, they're based on numbers. So there's fifty odd point games going on, turned to development fixtures because they're not getting to sixty points, and that that shouldn't be a measure. <laughs> that shouldn't have to even come into consideration. We should be tiering our teams based on their performance. Because as you say, you might have guys that come through that have played rugby all their life. You might have guys that have never picked up a rugby ball, and to expect them to play in the same competitions is not conducive for their development and not conducive for recruitment and retention you're then you know you're talking about coaches as well like the difficulty in in coaches and how many coaches you have and give them real life examples of guys that are you know putting in a shift at your club that you you feel like you want to support and if it's not in the strategy then they'll, they'll struggle to help support you just being there and having those voices being able to raise these concerns and be able to have those conversations is going to be vital for clubs and DG to continue the pattern that we have and that we are doing pretty well. You know, you, you look at the clubs and there's teams that are starting to produce more and more players and more and more teams and more and more youth players and more girls rugby and festivals and all that kind of stuff that's going on. And it will give you a better understanding of what your DO is trying to achieve because it is no magic wand. You can't just go in and wave a wand and all of a sudden create a team under 15, say. That's not how it works. It's a, They work in five-year cycles. You know, you've got to work in potentially six-year cycles because you recruit somebody at P5, you've got P6, P7, there's your first transition, P7 and AS1. If you've then got the traditional transition routes, there's another one under 14, there's another one under 18, um, under 16, sorry, another one under 18 in the seniors. So you've got four or five transition zones where players traditionally drop off. So they drop off at primary school because they're moving from small schools to big schools, primary and secondary. You've then got under 14s when they potentially drop off because they're starting to pick up their exams. They're then looking at their academic studies. You then drop off at 16s because you're then turning into, into 18. So you're potentially moving to jobs, moving to colleges, picking your hires, which is going to get your uni places. You then got the drop off under 18. Kids going away to uni, kids going to college, kids picking up work, kids going travelling. And then also that transition into senior rugby. Is there a second team for them to play in that they can just move seamlessly or are they having to transition straight into senior rugby? How does that look? And then you've got the guys that potentially 
do some of that stuff, drop off at one of those routes and then pick it back up four or five years later. Clubs don't get the credit because that player dropped off three transition zones before. Like our second team at the weekend, I seen about eight or nine names that I had had at school of rugby under 14s that are now playing seconds but didn't play 16s, didn't play 18s and came back and played seconds but are now playing five, six years later. So then how do we track that? And again, that will potentially come into the strategy and it will give clubs a better understanding of what it is that they're looking to try and do and how it all works, how it all pieces together. You're listening to the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast, bringing you the latest updates, captivating interviews and in-depth analysis of the sport we love. And now we have some exciting news for our listeners. This season we are proudly sponsored by BE Uniforms, the clothing partner of the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. They have been providing top quality workwear and rugby kits for over 34 years, serving rugby clubs, schools and businesses across Scotland and the north of England. What sets BE Uniforms apart is their commitment to quality and their extensive experience in the industry. With 10 retail stores spread across the region, they are the largest uniform company in the area. They've partnered with renowned brands like Canterbury and Macron, making them the go-to destination for all your rugby kit needs. From Melrose to Oban and beyond, BE Uniforms has been supplying top quality rugby kits to clubs all over Scotland. So, if you're gearing up for the 2023-24 season and looking for a reliable kit supplier, we highly recommend checking out BE Uniforms. Visit their website at beuniforms.com to explore their impressive range of rugby kits and workwear options. But that's not all. Did you know that BE Uniform hosts the podcast shop on their website? Now you can go show your support for the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast by purchasing exclusive DG Rugby Pod merch. We want to express our sincere gratitude to BE Uniforms for their support in bringing you this season of the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. Now, let's get back to the action on the field. Stay tuned for more captivating interviews and insightful previews and reviews of all the thrilling rugby happening across Dumfries and Galloway. If you have stuck around for part two after listening to me and John for the past however many minutes, thank you very much. Time for us to get stuck in the results roundup and the fixtures preview. And John, for the men's side, we were so, so close to that clean sweep I was talking about last week. We will get on to where we just, just fell short, but couple very good wins to kick us off. Newton Stewart needed their first win of the season. They were away at Kirkcaldy and won it 25-14. Yeah, we we said it was going to be was going to be a tough tough battle up there, but Newton had the knowledge and the experience that they they'd beaten Kirkcaldy before. They they'd played them last season and, and managed to beat them. So we knew that there was there was going to be a battle up front and from my my early reports that I got after the game, which was on Saturday, uh, that that was pretty much what happened. Newton, Newton had managed to front up and they managed to get the ball and playing through the hands sort of working. And I'm sure Wiley 
will be happy to get that, that first win under the belt. I've not had an opportunity to catch up with Wiley this week before we've recorded. So apologies that we haven't got a proper match report for Newton Stewart, but that's a that's a good one for them to get that first win under the belt and start making some tracks in, in that league um, to get themselves back up into where they should be. A lot closer run of things for Dumfries Saints. But a win nonetheless. What a way to do it. 34-32 against Hamilton. Yeah, and even though they were on that, they were, they were struggling to pick up that first win, they were the one of the three games, sorry, four games, that the score predictor had predicted a Dumfries and Galloway winning. Newton were the red-hot favourites. They had a 61% chance of winning. Saints were on 50 four. So the public had got behind the Saints and, and were willing them on for this win. And as Paddy said, the game was a, a massive milestone for them in the season, being able to get that under the belt. The performance showed another improvement and another step in the right direction for Dumfries. Although they were a little bit nervy at times, they managed to play with some speed and some real intensity that Paddy had been asking them for. Their pack, we've known, we, we've talked about it all last season, we've touched on it a little bit this season. They were able to get their dominance in the Hamilton pack and being able to work with that scrum for, for the first little bit of the game. And then Hamilton had to go unopposed, which then gave them that respite and allowed them to get a good platform to be able to play off which was a bit of a shame for the Saints because they would have wanted to really try and put the put the hammer down in that in that area. And as you know, it's really difficult to try and play without any set piece. So once that was sort of uh, kiboshed as a platform for them, the game ended up being a real back and forth. Saints managed to make sure that they got speed into the ruck ball, which gave them plenty of opportunities. They managed to get a score in the last few minutes, taking back the lead which then made, meant that they secured that first win after playing some of the high-paced rugby that Paddy's been trying to get off. So the performance was by no means perfect. We need to continue to build on that for the next couple of weeks and take some of the indecision that came out of the game and just try and up that execution that we know had been a problem last season. is obviously showing a little bit this season still, although they've got that win there was probably a few more opportunities for them to get out there. Shout out to Gregory Robinson, who played well, and Declan O'Neill, O'Donnell, sorry, not O'Neill, Declan O'Donnell in the forwards, who worked really hard and gave a huge impact off the ball. Scott Goodwin in the front row was what Paddy described as epic and a leader in the team. David Sharp at fullback, was also solid in defence and came into the line, which caused Hamilton some problems. And a return for Bobby Douglas in the centres, putting in a good performance. But Paddy wants to make sure that it's a whole squad achievement to be able to get that win. Everybody put in a shift and there'll be a good feeling in and around training this week as they as they build to try and pack up a second one against a tough opposition. Next game. We we're going to look at was National Four and Stewartry with a big win against Greenock. This score predictor had Stewartry. It was the first time we'd ever had it. 
a hundred percent of people thought Stewardship was going to come away with the win, and it appeared that was the way. And I'm not hundred percent sure, Roscoe, but that might have been because your name appeared on the team sheet. Tell us about it. <laughs> I actually had quite a bit of a funny game, but I'll I'll come on to that in a second. The things we were looking at in in the week building up to the Greenock game were getting a fast start because we'd been a bit sluggish past couple of games, scoring tries and making a statement. And I think we're all chuffed that we did all of that. 67 points is certainly a statement. We talked a lot during the week. Sandy had mentioned that he wants coaches to have a look at that fixture board or results board rather and see that we're us at home, we're capable of beating you by 50 points. We want people to worry having to come to Greenlaw and face a really good side. Tries, we definitely ticked that off. We scored 10. Finlay Telfer getting three. Vice-captain TJ McCorney getting two. Michael McCulloch getting two. Andrew Pickin, myself, and Kieran Maguire with one each as well. Three wins from three. It is us and Garnick at the top of National Four. I really think you can't get much better than that at the moment. Tough game to come this weekend. We'll get onto that in a in a second. But things are going really well to begin with. The reason I had a bit of a funny game, first of all, I started on the wing, which is the fourth posi- fourth different position I've played this season. So I'm certainly getting my money's worth in, in that back line. It was funny, though, because I came off at halftime for Fraser Forsyth. Shout out to Fraser, who ran in for a try, but stepped on the dead ball line. So his try didn't count. We switched places at halftime, but in the second half, a bit of ill discipline crept in for us. And we got a couple of yellow cards. Finn Telfer won, and then our nine, Archie Nicholson. So I was off the pitch when Archie got the nine. I got the nine, got the yellow. Andrew Pickin went to nine. I went back on and myself and Fraser both played kind of as double fullbacks. It was quite interesting. One of us would drop and one of us would, would go into the line. And then sometimes both of us would be stood in the backfield side by side, which was quite funny. I then went back off. And then a couple of minutes later, John Pickin hurt his leg. So I went back on. And then there was a couple of minutes left and John had got himself strapped up. So then I went back off. It was an absolute roller coaster, to be honest with you, John. But in the end, 67 points. And also, crucially, not letting Greenock get a try scoring bonus point. We held them to just 17. And yeah, we've got to be really chuffed with with all the kind of big ticks we can put next to what we were trying to do in that game. And I'm sure we're going to have a whole set of different ones this weekend. But hopefully we can tick them off this time next week. The, I don't want to be too harsh, but the side that let us down... For our clean sweep, John. I was really gutted when I was writing them up because I was doing a little tweet on our uh, Dumfries and Galloway Rugby podcast page with all the with all the scores, and it was going really, really well. And I'd actually peeped at Moffat, and I'd heard about Shires before, so I I actually thought it was we were at five from five. Could we go six from six in the men's game? But unfortunately, Annan at home, which is disappointing for them, I'm sure, disappointing for Juan as well. And in 17, or Drossen, 30. Yeah, putting into a little bit of context, though, Roscoe, it was top of the table versus second of the table. So there was, it was going to be down to some, some real fine real fine margins. 
We do have to make a special shout out though to AJ at Annan who managed to rock out for his 300th appearance for Annan Rugby Club. I think a rep he started in 2006 and is obviously still playing now and, and hitting that 300 mark and doesn't look like he is, uh, is struggling for any sort of form. And as we say, we played in our touch touch rugby team and he was he was looking good, he was looking sharp, he was looking fit. I have to tell him though that the glow up in Facebook is incredible. Like he's he's certainly done a he's certainly aged like a like a fine wine and got much better with age. He can read into that what he likes. I'm quite happy for that. But in short, going going to the game. It was a it was a typical Dumfries and Galloway, what we said right at the very beginning of the of the preview last week was that Annan had to start sharp and instead they let Adrossin get to an 8-0 lead after 20 minutes. So it wasn't a great one. But then they managed to get a try back through vice-captain Sean Heron, who managed to get a a trademark try, and Fraser McMillan managed to get the conversion, which brought them back to 7-8, around 20 minutes, just around around about that 20-minute mark. It looked like that was how the half might finish, but a lack of concentration and a little bit of lack of discipline meant that Drossen had managed to get themselves 16-7 score at half at half time. And in the second half, it was the usual next try, next points could be crucial for the direction of the game. And it was Annan that ended up scoring that with Alex Halliday going over for his try, the third of his season, to make it 12-16 with 25 minutes left to play. It wasn't long to wait until Annan managed to get into the lead where Johnny Callahan score crashing over to make it 17-16. But that lead didn't last too long, though, as two quick converted tries from Adrossin found Annan 17-30 down with 10 minutes left to play. With time running out, it looked like a win was going to be unlikely, but another Annan converted try could have given them two bonus points. But it wasn't to be with the game ending, as we said, 30 points to 17. Annan did go into the game looking at favourites. There was only 46% of people in Dumfries and Galloway on the match predictor predicted Anna Drossen win. The public were behind them, but unfortunately it just wasn't to be. A Drossen certainly looked like they picked up where they finished off last season. They struggled in the league and then sort of picked up towards towards the end of the year, secured, saved themselves from relegation. And they look like they're certainly building on from that with their new coaching team. So it's unfortunate for Annan. Celebrations for AJ, but it's by no means their season over. They're still having a good season. Yeah, it's one one loss. They can still come back from that. And now they know what a draws and have. And now they know how to how to play against them. Moving on to Shire then, and they were away to Kilmarnock. Now, we know we've mentioned Kilmarnock in the past couple of weeks. They're struggling a little bit in that West 1, which isn't very much like them, I'll be honest. Last season in West 1, I was I never looked forward to playing Kilmarnock. They're a good side, and especially away, as we said in the last episode, how good they can make their rugby, their stadium, everything about them just work at home. But Shire had their number, 26-8, coming back down the road with that win. Yeah, listen, as you said, 
Kilmarnock were always difficult to play at home. They have that big physical pack, well drilled and organised, and they've got a cracking, cracking back row. But Shire did. Shire obviously listened to the podcast. They listened to our advice, and they managed to get off to a bit of a bit of a good start with an early try through fullback Neil Forsyth. They then dominated territory and possession for most of the first half, but they were pretty wasteful on the whole. Couldn't take their opportunities and left a good number of try-scoring opportunities out there after some really good pressure. Penalty count was also a bit too high for, for the coaches liking John uh, Lycan. He would like to see that reduced for the next couple of weeks because that was certainly what allowed Kelly to come back into the game. They managed to get themselves a try and a penalty, which then meant that there was it was 14-8 going into the break. Second half of the game was a bit more loose, which suited Shire uh, and their Fitness was probably what made the difference with them starting to pull away towards the end. It was a real test of character later on in the game, but they managed to dig in and get that bonus point try, even though the the time had ran out and they were sort of playing into that injury time area. So overall, it was a good performance, controlled the game for the most part and dealt pretty well with a big Kelly pack. So hopefully their bodies will rest up because there's no rest for them with the game that they've got this weekend. Rounding off the men's before we have one women's game to talk about is Moffat. And as you've probably guessed by now, talking about an almost clean sweep, they also got the win. 13-10 against Berkmeyer. And it was all down to the Oranges. Spoken to Ross today and he reckons that the success was down to the pre-match bananas and oranges that they had. So if anybody's listening... Ross recommends bananas and oranges as their pre-match warm-up. But it was a real gritty performance uh, from Moffat again, having to come from behind. Burkmeyer had managed to score first, which meant they went up 5 nothing. But Max, off the boot, managed to score a penalty, which brought the game back to three points to five. Burkmeyer then managed to score again, missed the conversion, which then brought it to 10-3. And it bought a try from Scott Galloway and a conversion from Max meant that at the break, everybody was all square at 10 all. Max Douglas then took a penalty to get 13-10, but it was an absolute war of attrition in that second half with both teams knocking lumps out of each other. Burkmeyer coming at Moffat, Moffat being able to put up a bit of a blue and yellow wall and managing to hold them out. There was a couple of injuries that forced a few changes throughout the game. It was a stoic performance from the group to manage to get the game over the line. A Ryan Herbsman tackle at the death was a particular highlight for Ross as it managed to stop a three-on-one overlap for uh, Burkmeyer to go in the corner. So it was another example of some real positive energy throughout the group that Ross is, obviously was on the podcast and was talking about that's uh, shown a real change in, in Moffat's spirits and they are they are uh, starting to put together some some decent results and letting the the people of Dumfries and Galloway show them up because only 30% of people in the score predictor thought Moffat were going to beat Burkmire and they managed to pull it off. So well done to them, well done to the team. I have to quickly apologise because there are two women's games to chat about, not one. That's what you get for writing like a child and putting it at the bottom of your page. We start with the Scottish Premiership game between Sirens and a very strong Watsonian side. It was frustrating because I couldn't see any of it, but it was so close to me. 
I was playing my game at the same time and I looked over and Sirens were playing their game, which obviously, as we talked about, a very historic day for the club, great day for the club, but it meant I didn't get to see any of it. You, on the other hand, John, maybe had the chance to see a little bit more, to hear a little bit more about it, especially after the game. Sirens 10, Watsonians 46. Yeah, I tried to do the I tried to do the classic at Greenlaw and stand on the stand on the road in the middle and try and watch both games head on a head on a pivot. It was a good it was a decent performance from the Sirens. We we had said on the podcast last week that it was going to be difficult for them to be able to to handle a, a, a strong, a very strong Watsonian side. They've got a really good coaching team uh, supporting them on the side of the pitch. And they've got a lot of good players that obviously play at a real high level. So for the Sirens to be able to put together sort of balance, it was a bit of a balancing act, if I'm honest, obviously being involved in the internal conversations, was they sort of wanted to challenge some of their players to play them in different positions, to try and build a bit of knowledge base and a bit of uh, experience that will then stand them in good stead as as the season goes on. So they, they played a little bit of a of a different sort of style they were really trying to sort of follow a wide wide pattern which was good to see that they, they were really trying to trying to move that ball there was a there was a few line breaks that the sirens managed to get but Watsonians are so clever and so well structured and well drilled that the tiniest little bit of separation led to a turnover which then sort of caused caused the sirens some some real problems and that what's only inside just know how to build pressure, know how to manipulate defence and, and, and able to take some of the scores. But, you know, 46-10 does sort of flatter a little bit because it, they really had to really had to work for some of them tries. It wasn't quite the cakewalk that we thought it was going to be. The, the sirens really dug in, showed some great heart and, and were able to cause what's only in a, a bit of a problem. And, um, and you could tell that, like I knew, I know their coaches, and I was able to have a conversation with some of them at the side of the pitch, and they just didn't feel easy. Like they 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 felt like they were really being tested and really challenged, which is obviously great for the sirens going forward. So that's one that, that's sort of under the belt now. One of the, the sort of bigger teams, fairly respectable scoreline. If we're completely honest, with what was what we would probably expect. So that's that was good from them. And when only eight percent. Of the of the vote, think you're going to get a win on the Saturday morning or the Friday night. Sorry, when we we collected the stats for our for our infograph, they were actually on zero. So they managed to pick up a, a one supporter on this on the Saturday morning. But it was it was a game for Watsonians to win. We knew that, and it was about performance for the Sirens, and they managed to they managed to put one in. So they should be proud of themselves for that. Last but by no means least is I think. I should really know because we've only had what two or three game weeks. But our first draw of the season: Annan Warriors fifteen, Greenock Wanderers fifteen. And and according to Chocolate, Greenock were probably lucky to come away with that draw. He he would say that though, wouldn't he, as Annan coach? But he, again, he was really proud of his his girls. Uh, they put in a real big shift on both sides of the ball. Defense was far far better this time, as they've been struggling with that the last couple of weeks. And the attack, they played pretty well, building some phases with a forward add and some width and some pace. Probably left a couple of tries out there, but hey, when when you're when you're struggling to pick up any sort of points, anything will do. So so getting those, getting that draw, 
has uh, has just gives them a little bit of a uh, little bit of hope. Obviously, you want to win, but it's much better to draw than than to lose. Best of the attack was Nicole Barlow, Jane Stewart, and Tammy Allison getting sword of the match. And then defence, Neve Ross, Ashley Cole did well, winning the shield. The sorry, Neve Ross and Ashley Cole did really well, and the shield of the match went to Mali McGeer. And a special mention to two girls making their debut, Erin Ewing and Amelia Sheslag. I'm going to stab at that. I think Colin makes some of these names up just to test me. But there we go. So well done. There was a try at the last minute for Greenock and their kicker had an opportunity to win it at the death. But unfortunately, they missed, unfortunately for Greenock, missed the kick, which then meant it finished up with a draw. Although Chocolate says could have won the game, probably left some few tries out there. You would probably find the Greenock coach would probably be saying the same if their kicker had, had slotted that conversion over. So listen, it doesn't happen very often getting a draw. So it's a, it's a bit of a novelty for us to talk about. Yeah, unfortunate for Greenock Wanderers in that respect, as you say, but fortunate for us. The Galloway second 15 also played Greenock Wanderers and won 17-10. So that is two wins against Greenock and a draw. So not bad from Dumfries and Galloway. Unfortunately, Dumfries Saints weren't able to match that. Their seconds lost at the weekend, but I'm sure they'll bounce back and we'll have them on the winning side of the fixtures results roundup rather sometime soon. I really love the Anim Warriors sword and, and shield. I think that's a really cool idea. I just get really confused every time you say it because at Merkiston, the our first 15 awards, the best defender in the year got an actual sword because they did all like the cutting down, making all the tackles and that. So I get really confused whenever you whenever you say that the sword is for the attack. Anyway, I've been digressing a lot in this episode, so I will throw it over to you as we quickly run through the fixtures for the 23rd and 24th of September. Newton Stewart, off the back of a good win, are hosting Aberdeen Grammar. Yeah, and this is this is one that Wiley will probably be looking at to try and keep that momentum going, because Aberdeen Grammar are really struggling this season, they've not had a win all year, got relegated last year, having only won three games. So Newton should be looking at this again. Aberdeen to New to Newton Stewart is a fair distance to be travelling. So they'll be looking to try and get a good start and make sure they put Aberdeen under a bit of pressure. Uh, and hopefully they come away with another victory and get their show back on the road. Dumfries Saints are away at Alan Glens. Yeah, and this will be a tough one for Paddy and his men. Alan Glens are going pretty well. Three wins from three, but that win at the weekend will hopefully lift spirits in the camp and, and let them show, let them know that it is possible. You know, they've, they're starting to build those foundations. But again, I, I can imagine Paddy standing listening to this now telling me, John, it's not about the results. We're building we're building those foundations. We're trying to get those perfor- those performances right. And he's absolutely right. That's what Saints need to go in with is if you can get your performance right, the score will take care of itself and it'll manifest however it's supposed to manifest. So Saints looking for another performance against what is a high-flying Alan Glenn side. We at Stuart Tree are also away. We're going to Dunfermline. Really tough game. If 
you don't remember, that is it is a replay of the National Plate semi-final we met last season. But this time it's in the league, in National 4, and we're looking to make it 4 from 4. Yeah, so, as you say, Dunfermline's going to know exactly what Stewartry's all about. They're going to come and they're going to really try and challenge the Stewartry pack. They had a really big side. They'll run hard lines through the midfield. So Stewartry have to be prepared for that and they have to be ready. Now, Stewartry are three wins from three, which is which is great. Only one little thing, and that's only because I'm super critical because it's, because it's our club, is those bonus points. They've only managed to pick up one bonus point, whereas the other teams are, are picking up quite a few. So... Stewartry need to be sort of sort of having that in half their mind that they need to they need to be in there to win the game first and foremost and make sure that they're accurate enough that they can get four tries because we know they're capable of it. It's just being able to put it into practice. Dunfermline's defence slightly leaky, ninety three points so far, whereas Stewartry to just for comparison are only on fifty eight. So a little bit of an opportunity there for for Stewartry. They've scored 121 points, but they'll be looking to add to that tally. Dunfermline's attack has only brought together 78 points. So, all in all, you should be looking at a Stuartry win, but Dunfermline with a bit between their teeth, a bit of revenge, you never know. Two birds with one stone for this next fixture, and again, I'm just going to guess. Game of the week? Question mark. It is Wigtonshire versus Annan in a local derby. Can't get much better. And it's not just the fact that it's a local derby that makes it the potential game of the week, but both these sides are in the top five of the league and there's only one league point separating them. And that's one bonus point for Wigtonshire. So, yeah, this is this is going to be our game of the week. Two wins each, one loss each Shire building, Annan having a good start to this season. They've had that that little you know mishap when they've played in Dross and they've picked up their first loss. Yeah, will be looking for a they'll be looking to bounce back from that. Shire obviously want to continue. It would be a massive scalp for Shire to be able to 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 take one in the D and G derby. It's going to be tasty. It's going to be a, it's going to be a good game. It's going to be game of the week. Has to be. There's only eight points and the points difference totals between these two sides. Both conceded sixty six points, and Annan scoring eight points more with seventy eight, whereas in Shire are on seventy points. It's going to be a cracker. DNG derby. DNG rugby at its best. Good luck to both teams. My old ghosts coming back to me. Moffat are away after a narrow, but nevertheless very good win, and they are going to Hindland. Yeah, and it's never been a good hunting spot for for Moffat in the past, but they're going into this much, much better form. Hindland have also only managed two fixtures. They've won one and lost one. Moffat going in with their two victories. Difficult one to call. This one could go either way, 50-50. We're hoping Ross manages to get the oranges and bananas again and the boys have a, have a decent trip up there. They can't afford to to start slow. They need to be they need to be starting quick. Can't give the opposition a lead. They have to sort that out 
if they're going to continue the, their winning ways as the season goes on. So it's been interesting want to see how this one plays out. If it hadn't been Annan and Wigtonshire, this game could have been game of the week. The added DNG Derby just tips it over the edge for, for those guys. The Sirens are at home again, which is probably a good building block after what you were saying, John, about the Watsonians game. Another chance to play in front of the home crowd, another chance to take a big step in this Scottish Premiership, and they are welcoming Hillhead, Jordan Hill. Yeah, it's another tough game for the Sirens. Hillhead, traditionally a bogey team for them, having put hundreds of points past them in, in the past. So again, it's going to be sort of similar to similar to Saints, looking to try and build on that performance, build on those foundations. They, As I said, they changed their style of play a little bit to try and encourage a bit more of a of a wide, wide pattern to try and pull away from that power game that they had, they've traditionally always had. So fine to have that as a backup, but when you don't have another plan, especially in the Premiership, is, is where you're getting caught out. So that's what the coaches are currently working on, trying to develop that plan to go a little bit more expansive. And it's another opportunity for them to try that style of play and, and see what happens against a Hillhead team who are looking at mid-table finish, three wins, two losses. It's a good marker for Sirens to see, see where they're at. After the first draw of the 23-24 season, Annan Warriors have got a tough away game against Air. Yeah, real tough. Air unbeaten so far this season. Really look like they're flying, scoring 155 points and only conceding 36. Annan, on the other hand, only scoring 37 and conceding 190. 89 points already so Chocolate will be looking for that defence to be solid like he had last week against Greenock and then let, letting the attack play. We know that Annan have some potential to score. They've got some real talented players. It's just about being able to build that pressure and, and convert those opportunities and not be wasteful. It's going to be a tough one for them, especially away from home, but that's what rugby's all about, competition. Two teams in it, you control your performance enough, you might be able to pick something up. So good luck to them. Shire had a week off last week, but now they're back in action. And thankfully, they're at home with Bigger coming to town. It's, it's a tough round this weekend, all round for the women's fixtures. Shire, no exception. Bigger are on fire, having scored 222 points in their five games and only conceding 56 points. So Shire will have their work out. They've only managed to put together 67 points, conceded 120. Tough full gig for, for Shire. At home, makes it a little bit more palatable for them. If they can uh, frustrate bigger, hold them, and pull them into pull them into a fight where it's it's eeksy peeksy, then then that's how they'll be able to frustrate them and pick them off. Bigger will be coming in, into this game with a lot of confidence. And as I say, if Shire can just frustrate them, they they may be able to sneak something away from this fixture. So not a great round for the for the women's this week, <laughs> but there's every opportunity. If you are still listening to us at this point, it is truly truly amazing. Thank you so much. 
we are all but done. A little bit of any other rugby business from John. And then I promise for a week at least, we will shut up. Over to you, John. Yeah, you're right, Ross. Two pieces of any other rugby business and I will try and keep it quick for everyone. So the match predictor, we've been having a little look through that. We've been keeping scores now that people are, are submitting their names and we're able to keep track of it. We have a leader in Jake. He has managed to predict 17 fixtures correct so far. Jiggy J is in second place with 16. Dark Horse with 14 and third. And we have a little bit of controversy that we need you to be mediator for Roscoe. Cal on the score predictor had submitted two predictions this weekend. I will not give you the scores on each of the predictions, but the options for us are, do we allow an updated one? So the most recent one is the one we accept, or do we have to accept the first answer? Oh, that's tough. That's really tough. I'm going to go with, you can you, you can accept a change. There's so many times that, that you plan something out. I'm a, I'm a betting man, I'll be honest with you. I do a lot of betting and there's so many times that you're arming and arming and you and you make a decision and then you think, screw it, I'm going to go with my gut or vice versa. You've done a little bit of research or you've remembered something and you quickly go and change it. So as mediator, I'm going to allow a change. So go with the second answer as opposed to having to rule on the first. OK, well, Carl can buy you a pint the next time he sees you in the clubhouse because... His first prediction only predicted four games correctly. His second one predicted six games correctly. So he manages to keep himself up into fourth with 12 predictions correct. And then in fifth place, Dav has managed to make a good comeback and has found himself in the top five. He is currently on 10 points. Also, another little shout out for Izzy and Rab, who where one of our new submissions and them two guys actually had some of the highest predictions out of everyone with Rab, the ex-ref, predicting five games correctly and Izzy predicting six games, which puts him top with Carl for that round of predictions. So well done to those guys. Thank you so much for everybody who has taken part in the predictor competition. I am already almost out of page one and into page two of being able to keep track of everybody's score. So please make sure if you're signing up to the score predictor, you use the same name because it does massively help me being able to track who is going where and when for the score predictor. And last but not least, Roscoe, we have restored world order in our Rugby World Cup predictions. Jay Mitch currently sits top of the table, as well as top of the table in the match predictor for DNG. He is the match predictor for the World Cup. He is currently sitting on top with 139 points. Sitting second is none other than me with 136 points, which is surprising considering I know nothing about rugby in real life. <laughs> I'm just making stuff up. Fleming 
1977 is in third place and you find yourself in fourth place, Roscoe, so by no disgrace. Dav Thompson has managed to find himself up from the bottom of the table. Hightower has managed to jump a few places himself. And Dan Hendo, unfortunately, is currently in the wooden spoon position with only 33 points. But time to get him, time still to get off of that, get himself in the running. So again, thank you very much for everybody taking part in these competitions. It's a bit of fun, a bit of banter. Dumfries and Galloway wide, and that's part of the reason why we set this podcast up. So thanks very much. And thank you for listening, if you've made it this far again, to no guest this week, just myself and John. It was probably a struggle to listen to, but we chatted about some important things, some interesting things, some thought-provoking things, subjects I've never even thought about, just to get a little bit of food for thought. We've also run through the results. We've done the fixtures. All teams are going well so far. Plenty, plenty, plenty more rugby left to play. Just 10 episodes until we reach that 50 mark. We should start thinking about something special to do, John. But until then, I look forward to the next one, number 41. All the best. Good luck to all the teams. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a like and review on our social medias. Our Facebook page is Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are DG Rugby Pod. We also have the Score Predictor, which we run weekly, which will be on our social media accounts. And once again, thank you for any support that you offer the pod. It really does help us spread the word of rugby and Dumfries and Galloway across the country.